Welcome to Double Truck, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. Ever wonder what it's like to be a number one draft pick, to have all the hopes of a franchise, a fan base, and a city all on your shoulders? What about the hopes of an entire league? On today's episode, we feature Liz Merrill's story on Brianna Stewart, four-time NCAA women's basketball champion at UConn, and the number one pick in the 2016 WNBA draft. What happens after the bright lights and fame of draft night fade for the top pick? If history is any indication, it's the impossible burden of trying to bring relevance and a new generation of fans to a league that seems to be constantly struggling for attention. Coming up after the story, stick around for my interview with Liz where she tells us what it's like to follow around the number one pick on draft night and how life in the WNBA might actually mirror the movie Love and Basketball. Here's today's story. Can Brianna Stewart Transform the WNBA? By Elizabeth Merrill. Brianna Stewart has spent the past several hours in stiletto heels, and her hair has been teased so many times that it must be self-conscious. So it's a relief when her day ends, finally, at an after-hours dinner at Bobby Flay's Bar American, just outside the melodic jangle of the Mohegan Sun casino floor. Stewart's parents have spent much of this April night waiting for the photo shoots to end. They woke early this morning and drove 300 miles from upstate New York to Uncasville, Connecticut, to see her get drafted into the WNBA. And somewhere around 10 p.m., after scanning the steak tartare and duck confit on the menu, they settle in to exhale. For a family that temporarily kept her awards on the floor of the basement this spring so the dog wouldn't gnaw on them, all this rock star attention has taken them aback. Stewie, who used to put her head down and say, um, during interviews, had a handler whisking her around earlier in the evening. Meanwhile, a crowd lined up outside the arena hours before the draft, all to watch the inevitable. Stewart holding up a jersey from the Seattle Storm, the team that drew the number one pick in the draft lottery seven months earlier. The night is big, and the Stewarts know it. Her dad, Brian, who normally wears shorts regardless of the temperature, has thrown on a pair of slacks. Just before the show started, UConn coach Gino Ariema took a seat next to Brianna at a round orange table. Ariema insisted on being here, even though he had been so ill that he had to skip the national championship parade a few days earlier in Hartford. By the end of the week, he'll be hospitalized for three days with flu-like symptoms. When Stewart's name was called, he embraced her, germs be damned, and whispered, Does it feel good? Do you deserve it? Yes, she answered. Ariema is long gone by the time Stewart arrives at Bobby Flay's, and she takes a seat near her soon-to-be agent. Before she can catch up with her family, Stewart learns that Good Morning America wants her in New York by 6 a.m. It's a two-and-a-half-hour drive, and she's got to go. She asks her dad for a credit card so she can get a hotel room and dashes out the door. For one night, Brianna Stewart is the toast of the sports world. And if history is any indicator, it is all downhill from here. In the WNBA's perfect world, this dizzying night would go on, and Stewart would become the face of the league, carry it to new heights, and tap demographics that have gone untouched for two decades. But that's not how it's gone for any of the number one picks who have come before her, from Tina Thompson to Candace Parker to Diana Taurasi. On the court, they have lived up to the hype, winning MVPs and championships. 
but none of it has provided enough traction to give the league a significant boost in attendance, revenue, or TV ratings. In the NBA, the draft is about hope for a franchise, says Lon Babby, a senior advisor for the Phoenix Suns. In the WNBA, it's not just about whether the pick is going to make the Mercury or Seattle or the Silver Stars better. It's also about whether this player is going to make the league better, because the league is constantly fighting this challenge to succeed and endure. They're always fighting the perception that the quality of play is not worthy. And in the early days, maybe that was valid, but it sure isn't valid now. The play is extraordinary now. Interest, however, is not. The 2015 season saw a record low for attendance. The league averaged 7,318 fans per game, and TV viewership dipped. In September, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver admitted that the WNBA isn't as popular as he thought it would be. From afar, Val Ackerman, who was WNBA president from 1996 to 2005, still hopefully watches the league she helped start. She's befuddled by a landscape that fixated on women's soccer during a World Cup run last summer, but barely notices that the U.S. women's basketball team is going for its sixth straight gold in this year's Olympics. These are issues that new WNBA president Lisa Borders will tackle in 2016, and she'll look for opportunities almost anywhere. But she held off on putting Stewie on a pedestal. Borders scoffs at the notion that any 21-year-old could be the league's greatest hope. We feel that we have bright, shining stars, Borders says, but that doesn't mean they're the silver bullet to correct anything or enhance or amplify what we have happening. That's just not rational. That's like saying one person who comes in as the CEO will completely turn a company around. Nobody says that outside of sports. We know better. With the first pick of the 1997 WNBA draft. The first WNBA draft took place on a spring day in 1997, devoid of handlers and emotion. The Houston Comets knew whom they wanted with the number one pick, USC forward Tina Thompson. There was only one problem: Thompson wasn't sure she was interested. Thompson had just graduated, was prepping for the LSAT, and was highly skeptical of a women's pro league. She'd seen so many others collapse faster than the defenses that tried to cover her. The Comets threw out a salary offer somewhere near thirty-five thousand dollars, and Thompson said, "No thanks." Houston was surprised. Didn't every young college star dream of playing professional basketball? After some negotiating, Thompson says she was able to get her contract, including salary endorsements and bonuses, up to six figures. The WNBA now has a rookie salary cap. She took a red eye from California to Secaucus, New Jersey, to make it to the draft. Thompson says she was encouraged to act surprised when she was called number one. She opened her mouth and put her hands over her face when she was picked. It was totally fake, she says of her reaction. That night, her celebration consisted of ordering room service. She did not become the face of the WNBA. There were plenty of veterans there to handle that role, such as Cynthia Cooper, Rebecca Lobo, and Cheryl Swoops. But she did play 17 years before retiring in 2013. And she says that in the early days, every player felt a responsibility to connect with the fans. They wanted to do everything in their power to keep the WNBA going. I mean, we were touchable, we were reachable. She says, "You talk to people, you thank them for their support, you talk to their daughters and give them advice, you just be a human being." 
Thompson, who became an assistant coach at the University of Texas last year, wonders if the league's next stars are willing to make the same effort. I think a lot of the younger players are thinking about what the league is going to do for them versus what they can do for the league. In the WNBA, for its longevity, the players have to do the work. They have to connect with the fans and make themselves accessible, because we're not so far out of the red that we can act the way an NBA player does. With the first pick of the 1999 WNBA draft, perhaps no women's player came into the WNBA with more hype than Tennessee star Shamiqua Holdsclaw. She was dubbed the female Michael Jordan and was the first, and still the only, female athlete to appear on the cover of Slam magazine. When she was drafted number one by the Washington Mystics in 1999, hundreds gathered for a rally for her in Washington's Union Station. Holtzclaw brought her grandmother to the draft. After Shamiqua walked off the stage, June Holtzclaw handed her a crumpled piece of paper. When she was a kid, Shamiqua used to write herself letters, but she never knew her grandmother kept them. The letter read, "When I grow up, I'm going to be the first girl to play in the NBA. It's okay if the boys don't let me play with them all the time. I'm going to prove to them I'm better." Babby, a former agent whose client list once included Tim Duncan and Holdsclaw, says he's never witnessed a rookie player, male or female, saddled with the pressures of a league like Holdsclaw was. She never really got the chance to carry anything. Holdsclaw had no problem with pressure. She'd been surrounded by it since she was 11, playing basketball against the boys in New York City, but she struggled for direction. She was used to having someone protect her. Her grandma, her high school coach, Pat Summit at Tennessee, in the pros, without that structure, she crumbled. Her grandmother died, contributing to mental health issues that eventually led to a diagnosis of clinical depression and a bipolar disorder. Holtzclaw retired in 2007, came back and played another two seasons, then retired for good in 2010. She had to choose basketball or her life, she says. She chose life. But she can't help wondering what might have been. A lot of men enjoyed watching my game. Holdsclaw says, "They were like, 'You're the woman who got me excited about women's basketball.' It didn't make me nervous. I was just trying to figure, what's the example to follow? Who can I look to to mirror myself after? I didn't know. With the first pick of the 2003 WNBA draft, 2003 was a hopeful time in Cleveland." The Cavaliers won the lottery and selected native son LeBron James number one in the NBA draft. It is forgotten now that the city won the lottery twice that year. On April twenty fourth, two months before James was drafted, the Cleveland Rockers selected Latoya Thomas with the number one pick. Thomas was a great story. She grew up in Greenville, Mississippi, the heart of the Delta. Though she was recruited by Tennessee at a time when Summit was rarely turned down by a recruit. Thomas wanted to be true to her home state, so she went to Mississippi State and became one of the best players in the country. After the Rockers took her number one, she felt special. She remembers, the team set her up with an apartment in a downtown high-rise for the summer and a car. She thinks it was an Impala, but the team never did much to promote her. Maybe the city was too caught up in LeBron. Thomas has another theory: the franchise didn't want to get too attached to her. By the end of the year, the Rockers folded and Thomas was gone. She landed in San Antonio, where she'd play for former NBA player D. Brown. A couple of months into the season, Brown resigned. 
He didn't even talk to us before he left, Thomas says. Her luck in the WNBA didn't change much. She went to Los Angeles, then Detroit, then Minnesota, but she never seemed to find the right fit. When she'd go home to Greenville, everyone would think she must be well off, a number one pick. Truth was, the only place she could make a good living was overseas, spending her off-seasons in Korea, Russia, Spain, Israel, or France. After a while, I was putting so many miles on my body, she says. So when she was released by Minnesota, she decided to play overseas and take the WNBA season off. I was like, since they don't want to pay us, I might as well spend time with my family and play overseas. I got to that point. She retired from basketball last year and has no regrets. Well, maybe one. She wishes she could have gotten to know LeBron. That would have been my dream, she says, to tell him that I was the number one pick as well. With the first pick of the 2008 WNBA draft, when she left her job as the WNBA's president back in 2005, Ackerman, now the Big East commissioner, believed that Diana Taurasi was going to be the megastar everyone talked about. The guard from UConn, the number one pick of the Phoenix Mercury the year before, would sell tickets and lift the league to new levels. She came out of the best program with the biggest name, Ackerman says. She's transformative in many ways. Tarasi has proceeded to win three WNBA championships, three Olympic gold medals, and six EuroLeague titles. None of this helped move the needle. And she skipped the 2015 WNBA season to rest for the Russian team she plays for in the offseason. Just four years after Tarasi's draft day, Candace Parker was supposed to shake up the league. She was smart and personable and had model-esque looks. Best of all, she could dunk. In her first season with the Los Angeles Sparks, she earned Rookie of the Year and League MVP honors. Only Wilt Chamberlain and Wes Unseld had done that in pro basketball. It seemed that finally the WNBA might have found a star who could transcend. Four months later, Parker stunned the league with a big announcement. She and former Duke star Sheldon Williams were having a baby. She took off the first eight games of the 2009 season after she gave birth to their daughter, Layla. My responsibilities, I think, changed when I had Layla, she says, because I was her role model and I wanted to do things for her. The first year was kind of trying to push everything out and focus on myself and my experiences, and then the second year was just making her proud. She struggled with injuries the next two years and didn't play a full season again until 2012. A year later, the league was abuzz over Brittany Griner. But Parker shies away from the idea that she or Griner or anyone else is needed to revitalize the league. I don't think the league needed saving, Parker says. The more players who come in with higher skill sets, the more attention you can gain. With the first pick of the 2016 WNBA draft, of all the number one picks, Stewart might very well have the game to become the new face of the league. She's a six-foot-four post player with guard skills and four national championships who plays, and women's basketball aficionados cringe when this analogy is used, like a guy. She does things that very few, if any, women's basketball players have done, says Oriema, who has coached three of the past seven number one draft picks. She has a chance for all the high school kids that are playing, all the college kids, everybody watching, to go... Wow, this is a new era of women's basketball. 
A kid that can dunk and shoot step-back threes and handle the ball and be that humble and just have fun and play the game? She hasn't been completely spoiled by all the stuff that's going on. But the reality of the WNBA is that it might not matter how good Stewart is. She will go to Seattle with probably a fraction of the fanfare from her college days, draw a $50,000 salary, and struggle for summer relevance in a city that will fixate on just about everything but women's basketball. The Sounders, the Mariners, at least on days that Felix Hernandez is pitching, and the Seahawks training camp. In the WNBA, players face identity issues. They spend only a few summer months in their team's towns, then go overseas and play. They are not the face of one team. They're wearing multiple jerseys. Back in February, Connecticut Sun forward Chanae Agwumake, the number one pick in 2014, and a handful of other WNBA players met with Adam Silver during All-Star Week and asked for his thoughts on how they could become more relevant. He said, we need to be more like Serena Williams, Agwumake says. She's a great athlete, but she's Serena, unapologetically. In the WNBA, I think we tend to go with the flow. It's like we're in college. We're afraid of what our coaches will tell us. We need to speak our minds and give opinions because we're educated. Agwumake believes that the WNBA has had a savior complex, but that history has shown it doesn't work. She points to the NBA, where fans are drawn in by numerous storylines, such as Steph Curry's brilliance and LeBron's quest to give Cleveland a title. We can't bet on having this amazing God-save-us player, Agwumake says. We have the best athletes in the world. It's not just one person. It's many different people. Stewart is still willing to give it a shot. She doesn't come out and say it, at least publicly, but her parents believe she wants to be that face of the league. They thought about it the day after the draft during the long drive home to North Syracuse, New York. They worried about the pressure. A big boulder on her shoulders, Brian Stewart called it. Then he remembered how Brianna, at 18, told reporters in Connecticut that she wanted to win four titles. She's up for it, Brian says. I don't know if it could be any tougher than where she just came from. He said it after watching his daughter get showered with love at the draft and in her previous four years in Connecticut. But that day was a dream, and Seattle is thousands of miles from stores. The real struggle begins now. Thanks for listening to the story. And we're joined now by Liz Merrill, who wrote the piece. Uh, Liz, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, sure. Uh, so let's just start off. You you spent some time with Brianna Stewart before. You wrote a different story about her and her time at UConn. And this was a different one, obviously, looking at her entry into the WNBA. Where did the premise for this story come from, sort of looking at her entry into the league, but also the history of, of uh, the top picks and, and what they have to deal with entering the WNBA? Well, you know, doing that story on her and Gino and kind of their pursuit for excellence a couple of weeks earlier allowed me to go to a couple UConn games uh, up in stores. And um, I think everyone knows what a big deal UConn basketball is just by virtue of their kajillion national championships. But until you actually experience the fans and the way that team is treated, you don't really grasp it. 
I mean, they're treated, they're treated like a professional team, basically, uh, or like a men's team. Um, so the whole concept of how after the draft, it's never going to be the same. It won't from that standpoint. Um, she's never going to have that adulation. I mean, unless, some, unless something just dramatically changes in the whole landscape of WNBA, it won't happen. Now, UConn's kind of unique to that. I guess you could maybe say the same possibly about somebody like Brittany Griner at Baylor, but UConn's such a unique situation and so many, you know, they produce so many WNBA players that, you know, it'll, from that perspective, they're just, they're, when they go to these WNBA teams, they're just not nearly as revered or known for that matter. Well, and that gets me to my next question, that idea of, of having the broader sort of questions and challenges of the WNBA facing these players individually, is that something that's on the mind of active players, that whole question of, you know, what they can do for the league versus what the league can do for them? I think so. You know, I think with the veterans, definitely, because they've been in the league for a few years and they've seen this. You know, um, I was talking to uh, Janae Agumake about this. She was a first-round she was a number one overall draft pick, like, uh, probably about three years ago. Um, and, you know, she actually had kind of gathered with a few other WNBA players at the All-Star Game last year, the NBA's All-Star Game, and talked to Adam Silver just about, hey, w- what can we do to market ourselves better? Because Adam Silver at some point last year had made the comment about how the league hadn't grown exactly how, you know, they had expected it to. Uh, and, you know, one thing they talked about and one thing that she's really conscious about is, is the players having more of a personality and more of a voice. You know, I think, um, you know, with the NBA and the NFL, not only have you got the storylines for these games that are so significant, but you've also, you know about these people's lives and it makes, you know, it draws you into the game. Um, the WNBA hasn't really had that. And she said that there was always sort of a hesitancy to speak your mind. Like you had to be polite. Um, you, you didn't want to, like, you, you're, so, you're so happy to have this league that you didn't want to speak out of turn. You didn't want to be controversial. Now, I don't think Adam Silver would, would say to them, yeah, I want you to go and, you know, do this and this and be controversial. But, you know, that, that these are intelligent women who have opinions. And that that by expressing them sometimes and just being themselves and showing more of their personalities, I think that they sort of believe that that could help drum up more interest in the league and make the league more popular because that's what it's all about a lot of times is the personalities in the league, you know, with LeBron and, you know, Kevin Durant. I mean, you, you know these people. And that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons you follow the NBA. The WNBA sort of doesn't have those storylines. And I think that's one of the things they're more conscious about now is trying to flesh those out. Well, one thing that you bring up in the piece is this idea of WNBA players having an identity in their own town versus the time that they spend playing overseas. And obviously there's the economic considerations that all players make doing that that you point out. But do you think that that's one of the issues there as well? The fact that these that WNBA players, that they're splitting their time and that perhaps they don't have as big a presence or identity like you were talking about in, in communities like, say, a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant or a Steph Curry? 
Yeah, sure. But by the same token, yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, they're, they're overseas. I mean, you could make the argument that like an NFL player probably doesn't stay in the city he plays in. Like, you know, I, I used to cover the Chiefs and Tony Gonzalez by no means lives in Kansas City and, um, you know, in February, he was, he was hightailing it back to California, you know, where it's warm and where he's from. So I, you still have that, but the difference is the, the, the international leagues, they go on for so long. So you're gone for a large part of the time. Whereas, you know, Tony Gonzalez doesn't need to market himself in a city any more than he already did. And the WNBA season's pretty short. It's over just the course of the summer. Uh, so, yeah, there definitely is something there. I mean, these guys just kind of zip in and zip out, you know, and uh, especially if they're playing internationally. I mean, there are more stars than, like, wherever they play, whatever country they play in. I, you know, last week, uh, uh, Love and Basketball was on cable, and I, I'm always sort of drawn into that movie. Uh, I don't movie. know if it's Omar Epps or we yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's sort of like, I think that movie was made in like 2000, but some of that, from what I gather, still rings true. You know, they, they show, um, you know, some of the characters playing overseas and they're talking about how they make all this money and one of them's happy to be there and the other one's not. I think you still run into that a lot today. I think Kate Fagan sort of wrote something like that like a year or two ago, just about players playing overseas. I mean, the money is fantastic. And it's way more than you could make in the United States with the WNBA. But, like, I do think that there, some of those guys probably do have more of an identity overseas. And it's interesting that, you know, the league has been here for a while now, and that's still the case, you know, like 17 years later. I guess that movie was more timely than we ever thought it could be. It was a timeless classic. <laughs> but Well, what was the biggest challenge uh, for you in, in, uh, re- in writing this piece? Well, part of it was just that we'd already written the other one, just like, you know, so you wanted to, you know, we'd already written sort of the ultimate Brianna Stewart, Gino story. Um, So that was kind of hard thinking, okay, well, what do we use for this? But in some ways it was easier because you had a lot of voices, you know, to spin it forward um, and sort of take a look at the league and what she was entering, you know, she is not a super, Brianna's not a super chatty person in general. And she's not like, and I don't know, you could say, like, I know last year there was this great hope because her skills, and I, I hate to use this terminology and I'm not, I'm just using it because it's been used by others that, okay, she plays quote unquote like a guy. And so that'll make her more appealing that she can dunk the ball. And, you know, she's so effortless. Not to say that like the women's game is, you know, doesn't have its own fantastic qualities and everything. But that was sort of what was talked about last year is that she's got these skills that are sort of um, transcendent. Um, But like one thing, I I don't think she's the type of person who likes to uh, be in front of the the cameras all the time and the microphone, you know, I think she'll do it. She'll do whatever she can to sort of promote the league. But, you know, um, she, she's not going to be this person who's going to be like pitching a lot of stuff, you know, like, uh, and so I think, you know, we did one thing the story looked at was sort of some of these other, uh, players who down over the years were sort of supposed to be that face of the WNBA. And that was sort of the theory is that the league is sort of lacks that face, 
you know, everybody thought it was going to be Shamika Holtzclaw, and then she ran into all those issues. Uh, you know, everybody thought it was going to be Candace Parker, you know. Uh, and it's just never sort of materialized and gotten traction. And I don't know if it has something to do with when the – I mean, you would think ideally, and I'm sure this came in mind, is that the league is played during the summer when there's not as much sports on, right? You don't have the NFL to compete with it. You don't have the NBA. Uh, so, but I don't know if it's just like you kind of unplug during that time and, you know, but who knows? There's many reasons why, you know, that one person hasn't sort of, you know, taken on that face. Uh, but it's just, it's just the way it is. And it's just the reality. I, I know that Val Ackerman was sort of talking about at the time how she wished that, that the women's basketball, that WNBA gained the traction that the women's world cup had. You know, some of those faces from the Women's World Cup were just so universally known so quickly, you know, and they got all these marketing deals. You'd see them on all these commercials. And it just hasn't happened with the WNBA. And it hasn't happened with the women's national team in basketball either. And and they've been really good. I mean, they arguably have had more success uh, consistently for a longer time. It's just, it's interesting. Uh, And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's to do with the fact that the, women's soccer is better than the men's team, you know, uh, I mean, successfully, you know, as far as like, the, I'm not saying they could beat them or anything, but right. you know, success wise, they've won more. I don't know if that has something to do with it or if it's just cause it's soccer. Uh, but it is an interesting sort of dynamic. Well, in, in mentioning all those characters and the, the various first, first round picks or the various uh, top picks, was there any reluctance in any of the people to, to talk about this or to talk about their stories? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think people try to put a positive spin on things, you know. Uh, I, I don't think there wasn't a, a great reluctance, I don't think. I mean, I don't think people want to, like, say that, hey, nobody's, you know, that, that they, they don't probably want to, you know, they want to continue to grow the league. And they're still really hopeful that they can. And, you know, the after the story was published, you know, that they had a better – season numbers wise attendance went up like four percent um I, I believe tv viewership went up like a considerable amount um so it was the it was the 20th anniversary that's that was kind of the point of the magazine we did a big issue on the WNBA, i think at 20 and uh you know they, they got a new president and there was a concerted effort to sort of improve the marketing in the league. And I, obviously they were somewhat successful because they did experience growth um, last year in both attendance and viewership. Well, the, the last thing I was wondering about from the piece, you mentioned uh, the, the first, the very first pick Tina Thompson and her draft story, basically that she wasn't really sure if she was going to join the comments and that she basically went up when they had the draft and acted like it was a surprise and that the whole thing she tells you, it was totally fake. Was that a story that was widely known? How did you, how did you dig into that? Well, I don't think it was widely known simply because nobody really covered the draft that first year. I mean, the draft was like not a big deal. You know, it was like in this really tiny sort of room from what she was describing. It was not like, you know, this, the draft last year was this huge production. Um, I was, like, really surprised. And I'm sure, part, look, they know where, who they're playing to. I mean, they're smart in the way that, yeah, you have the draft in Connecticut, right, where you've got, 
you know, this, this really rabid fan base. And with so many players every year go to the WNBA. Uh, so that's smart to have it someplace where there's going to be, and there were people waiting outside uh, for the draft to start. It was at a casino and like a big, you know, auditorium type thing with a stage and everything and tables, just like, you know, you would see with any other draft. But back then, Tina made it sound like it was quite a smaller venture, uh, like a very, a way smaller deal. And so she didn't even know if she was going to enter the draft. And she kind of bargained her way into getting more money to getting six figures, which was kind of unheard of then. And um, she took a red-eye flight out there, was super tired, you know, had to do, I think she said she had to do her own makeup and stuff. And, uh, and um, yeah, she had to sort of act surprised, you know, that it wasn't, she had to pretend, was like, oh, I just got drafted, you know, because it was, for, you know, they, they wanted this, they wanted to make this thing bigger and they wanted to make this thing sort of, you know, something that people wanted to watch. And so, yeah, she, I don't know how widely that was known, but that was like a long time ago. And it sounds like it wasn't a very big deal. You know, the draft this last year was a huge deal. You know, it's like, and I guess that's kind of sort of the thought too on it'll never be this big for them because it was. I mean, you there were some elements of it that totally reminded me of the NFL draft just as far as, you know, just this legion of reporters and these press conferences and they're doing all, you know, I couldn't, Brianna was being whisked from one thing to another. It was like, you know, you finally got a little bit of time with her in between and stuff, but it was a big deal. They had some big thing in the morning. And uh, so, yeah, it, the draft has evolved into being something much larger than it was back then. Correct. Well, Liz Merrill, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the show today, and uh, excellent piece, and thanks for, for being here, and we'll have you again sometime. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. Talk to you later. And thanks again to Liz Merrill for joining us today on Double Truck. You can read her story and more at ESPN.com slash Double Truck. That's double and truck, all one word. And you can stick around and hear more stories on the show. Uh, and we'll be back again soon. I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.